To be able to be here this evening is an absolute pleasure. My wife and I lived in Cookville when we married. We attended Tennessee Tech. We were working on Interstate Drive, Restaurant Row. We, uh, we lived in Cookville until our first son was on the way, at which point we moved to Crossville. You've met our first son. His name's Walker, and he was here with you a number of months ago. Um, thank you for allowing him to be able to be with you, by the way. Tonight is particularly special for us to be able to see so many faces from different points in our past. Folks that we knew in Crossville, folks that we've known from New Orleans, folks that, that, that we've known for years and admired so dearly. Thank you for being out here and as Brother Don said, for, for braving the weather, the, the seven inches of snow. And as it's always said, you know, it's not the roads you have to worry about, it's the other drivers. Well, thank you for braving the other drivers and for being a group that none of you have to be worried about. It's all the other drivers, right? Seek ye first. We just sang the song. The passage comes from Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let's take a look at the context the context of the, the very theme of this, this meeting is in the context of change. We back up to Matthew 4, 17. Jesus is preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 23, he's going about and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Good news, you need to repent. Good news, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon about repentance. Wait, Scott, I don't see the word repentance in there. That doesn't mean it's not about repentance. There are things they needed to change. Brief overview. Jesus was calling them to repent, to change. They needed a change of ambition. Matthew 5, 1 through 16, they needed to realize that the good life has happiness in heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. The things that Jesus declared as blessed, makarios, those things that are their true happiness, they're not the kinds of things that were greatly appreciated among the Jewish mindset of the day. But the true happiness is focused on heaven. Oh, by the way, true, the life worth living gives glory to God, which is where the focus shifts, Luke, uh, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. So the sermon begins with an emphasis on a change in ambition. Let your happiness be on heavenly things, and let, let the glory be going to God. Then the shift gets to the heart of the sermon, and it's about a change of religion. He tells them, Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. And then as he moves forward, he informs them that no jot, no tittle is going to vanish from the law, but except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's another shocking idea. Except your righteousness surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, those were the people that were deemed ultimately righteous. Those were the examples to follow of the day. And they were a bunch of grinning hypocrites is all they were. In fact, Luke 16 Jesus would describe them as you or they that justify yourselves. They're the ones that, uh, that were covetous and thus justified themselves. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was a self-righteousness, a self-justification. To the point that when Paul later described the mindset of the Jews overall, Romans 10.3, he said they going about to establish their own righteousness and being ignorant of God's righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. When Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, He's preaching a new approach to religion and righteousness. And it's not a self-righteous religion. As such, moving through this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, there's an emphasis on real righteousness, repents of immature summaries. And that's exactly what Matthew 5, 17-48 describes. You've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said. We could have the same conversations today, Christians. We could sit down with members of the Lord's church and say, you've heard that it was said this, and you've heard that it was said this. But do we really get to the heart of the matter and what the Bible actually says? Or how often are we practicing checklist Christianity? 
Well, here's what mama always said and what daddy always said, but we can't find book, chapter, verse for what we actually believe, which is why once Jesus deals with their different approaches to different ideas, all of which need corrected, he will tell them, Matthew 5, 48, you need to be complete, perfect. Teleos is the Greek word. You need to be mature. He just told the religious people of his day that they needed to grow up. They needed to overcome their immature sum summaries and their, their short-sighted Cliff's Notes descriptions of what God's law said and, and come to a full understanding of it. They needed to repent of their immature summaries. They needed to repent of their insincere service. That almsgiving that was just done to be seen of men. The prayers that were just done to be seen of men. The fasting that was just done to be seen of men. Don't give alms or pray or fast like the hypocrites do. Matthew 6, 1 through 18, he deals with the insincere service. Our focus tonight is going to be on Matthew 6, 19 through 34. When he approaches their idolizing of security. Lay not up treasures on earth, Matthew 6, 19. That conversation will shift to saying no man can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other. He'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Who's your God? Is your God the God of heaven and is he who you serve? Or is your God the dollar bill? Is your God the wallet? Is your God materialism and physical considerations? They had idolized security. We'll come back to that. Moving forward to the end of that section, Jesus will say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. <laughs> that connects back to Him saying, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, not self-righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and not man-made righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's God's plan. That's God's pattern. That's God's gospel of Christ. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith unto faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17. That's the power of God to salvation. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, not self-righteousness. Now... Continuing to overview the Sermon on the Mount, just to make sure we keep things into perspective. After he discusses their idolizing of security, he then discusses with them their inconsistent standards, their inconsistent judging, ca casting judgment. And then their inconsistent judging and their casting pearls before swine. It's amazing what they would condemn and then what they would tolerate. And then he would deal with them uh, moving forward about having a change of direction. Selecting the straight way, rejecting the ravening wolves, following the Father's will, and living the Lord's words. But our focus tonight will be on that the context is change, but let's get more specific. The specific passage that we're examining, the idolizing of security, the context is contentment. He tells the Matthew 6, 34, after he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Take no thought, therefore, for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. The word translated sufficient, archetas, uh, from archeo, it can be translated content. Don't take thought for the morrow. That's miramnao, the word translated take thought, and it can be translated as be not anxious. This is a context of contentment. Dealing with trusting what God supplies. Change. Contentment. And there's one more aspect of this context we need to keep in mind. And it's a context of concern. Miramnao. Anxiety. That's not the first time Jesus uses that word. He used it first back in verse 25 when he said, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink. Neither take thought for your body, what ye shall wear. Don't be, do not miramnao. Do not be anxious. Do not exercise anxiety. You ever heard of a worry wart? You ever called somebody a worry wart? It doesn't usually go over really well, does it? You're worried that the person beside you is going to be concerned about the way you react, aren't you? Yeah, that person beside you, a worry wart? You know, a worry wart's when, when you're so busy fidgeting that you rub a blister on yourself. 
Sometimes we describe people as a nervous wreck. Jesus is telling them not to be a bunch of worry warts and nervous wrecks. The cause of their worry wartiness and their nervous wreckedness is going to be their self-righteousness. Their self-satisfied, self-focused, self-reliant approach to life. Now, those things being said, anxiety. Anxiety is described generally as worry or nervousness that occurs regularly for an extended period of time. The, uh, the medical Bible, as they usually call it, uh, describes anxiety as a period of nervousness that lasts for at least six months where more days than not there's that feeling of anxiousness. There's another affliction that is closely connected to anxiety. This one's called depression. Now depression is usually loosely defined as an extended sinking feeling, a continued lowness. Now it can be brought about by disappointment, humiliation, any number of factors. And keep in mind when we talk about anxiety, when we talk about depression, sometimes these are chemical imbalances. There are times when these are beyond a person's control, but there are times when they're not. We're not here to assess every individual and decide whether or not it's a chemical imbalance or not. What we're here to do is look at what the Lord had to say about this topic. The context has changed and they needed to change. The context is contentment and they needed to choose it. The context is about concern and they needed to stop worrying about the things that were beyond their control. That brought about anxiety and it's closely connected to depression to the point that Studies have found that there is more in common between anxiety and depression than there is to separate the two. Frequently, people that suffer from depression are also diagnosed with high anxiety 50% of the time. <laughs> and some suggest that it may be more than that. 2020, that year that everyone talked about having uh, a, a vision, right? The uh, 2020 vision for the church. <laughs> and nobody saw 2020 coming. COVID. That year, 42% of adults in America exhibited depression symptoms by the end of the year. That was up from 11% the previous year. A 31% increase. A Harvard study found that 52% of COVID survivors suffered major symptoms of depression. And the lingering effects of 2020 remain today. The anxiety, the depression is still something that plagues our society. But there's something else we need to keep in mind. It's not anything new. We go back into the scriptures. We take a look at Proverbs 27, 20. And... Uh, a good man will be satisfied of himself. Whereas Proverbs 30, the description is given of those who... Uh, there's a generation uh, that just says, give, give. The Horchlease has, has two daughters crying, give, give. There are three things that are never full. Four things say not, it is, it is enough. The grave, the barren womb, the, the uh, earth that's not filled with water, and the fire. They say not, it's enough. Here's a description of people being compared to uh, uh, events and real life scenarios where they just can't be satisfied because an absence of satisfaction was something that was evident in the behavior of people even in Solomon's day. Matter of fact, Solomon saw it in the mirror. Ecclesiastes 1, he described in verse 8 how the eyes of man are never full. He's never satisfied. A workaholic. According to Solomon in Ecclesiastes, the workaholic is just doing it for himself. Now, he will arrive at the, the basic idea that whatever you do, do what you love and love what you do. Ecclesiastes 9 will say, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. But even that is from the Lord talking about not living just to build houses, not living just to, uh, to have all of this legacy left behind, but do what you love and love what you do. But even that didn't find the meaning of life. Remember the phrase so often repeated in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanities. This also is a vanity. 
This is a vanity. This is vanity. All is vanity. It was nothing. Nothing satisfied. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, as he searched for the meaning of life apart from God, could not find contentment. And it's not until we get to the culmination of this research that he ultimately supplies the conclusion of the matter, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole of man. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord prolongeth days. He that hath it shall abide satisfied. Even in Solomon's day, he arrived at the conclusion that true satisfaction will only be enjoyed by those that have a proper respect for and fear of God. That's our introduction. We think about what Jesus had to say in Matthew 6, The context is about change, and they needed to change, particularly their idolizing of security. The context is about contentment, and they needed to choose it. The context is about concern. And any society of people that fails to trust God will fail to find contentment and be overloaded with concern, anxiety, and depression. It's happened throughout human history, and we can still see it today. So we come back to where we started. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What does Jesus have to say in this context pertaining to contentment? Let's note three ideas. And as we do... We'll take what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll look at some other passages that will bolster each of the points that he makes. First, true contentment. If we're going to seek first contentment, true contentment treasures heavenly treasures. Matthew six nineteen could be worded, treasure not treasures on earth. We have it worded as lay, up for yourself, lay, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. But the laying up is a treasuring of something. Jesus essentially says, to put it in plain old Tennessee terms, don't treasure earthly treasures. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Treasures on earth are threatening. They threaten to separate a person's focus from God. Treasures on earth are temporary. They do not last at best, they last only as long as that person's life, which, by the way, is but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Treasures on earth are threatening, they are temporary, and they are tenuous. Remember the description that Jesus gives, moth and rust corrupt, thieves break through and steal. You ever come home and find the door ajar? Window broken? Scarring, isn't it? I was four years old. We came home and they'd broken into the house. And all I remember is they took my favorite toy. And I'm still going to have trouble not seeking vengeance if I find that person because I never found that toy again. He, he was a gray dude in a cowboy hat that stood this high and as a four-year-old he was your best friend. Thieves broke through and stole it. You realize life didn't come to an end? Life went on. There's so many things that we possess, and sometimes they possess us. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Treasure not earthly treasures, but instead treasure and treasure sincerely heavenly treasures. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, neither moth nor rust corrupt, these not break through and steal. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now we're talking about earthly treasures. And we typically study this and we start thinking about finances and money as well we should. There are some other things that folks treasure that they will likewise allow to become their... Jesus will say, you can't, you can't serve God in anything else. If we treasure sincerely heavenly treasures, then think about the things that will not get in the way. Do you realize neither NFL nor SEC football will get in the way? When we treasure heavenly treasures, we won't let sports come between us and God. We'll be able to put those things in the proper perspective. 
When we treasure heavenly treasures, we, the job will not get in the way. It will be put in its proper perspective. When we treasure heavenly treasures, the children's sports won't get in the way either. When we treasure heavenly treasures, then we'll heed what Jesus would say when he said, Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And we will not let other people's interests or other people's obsessions and our obsession with the person who has a materialistic obsession, we will not allow those considerations to stand between us and our God. What do we treasure? True contentment treasures heavenly treasures. And folks, if my greatest treasure is my bank account, my automobile, my home, my property, my hobby, if my greatest treasure is my children, if my greatest treasure is my spouse, can all of those be blessings? Absolutely. But if I love those more than I love my God, I won't find contentment. Treasure heavenly treasures. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He moves the conversation forward. And he says, the light of the body is the eye. If your, light be, if your eye be single that is focused, your whole body shall be full of light. Are we focused? Are we truly focused on heavenly things? Are we the kind of people that have one eye on the heavenly and another eye on the earthly? Or an occasional peripheral glance on the heavenly, but the primary focus on the earthly? He goes on to say, if your eye be darkness, or if your eye be evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? We're talking about distraction. We're talking about our focus being in the wrong direction. COVID. 2020. By the time it was all said and done, by the time elderships and congregations made the best decisions they could make. Did some make decisions that, that held far closer to fear than to trust in the Lord? But some made the best they could make. Having lived in New Orleans, you know when a hurricane's coming on Sunday, the church doesn't meet. We try to do what's going to be wise and take care of folks. Well, there was a storm coming in March of 2020. We it, it, but it was a different kind of storm. And churches throughout the land made the best decisions they could with the information that they had. And then, by the time we realized that this thing called COVID was indeed a serious threat, but not bites in the streets, quite, quite the way it had been depicted, by the time we, we started trying to bring everything back, 50% gone. H half of... Half of those that have been attending, their hearts had manifested where their focus was. And it wasn't on the Lord. It wasn't on His kingdom. It wasn't on His righteousness. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Treasure not earthly treasures. Treasure sincerely heavenly treasures, without distraction, without compromise. And move that thought forward one more time, treasure only heavenly treasures. You cannot serve God and mammon. He's a preacher and a good one. And his wife said she was finished. She'd found someone else. And in sitting and talking with this good brother, he lamented the, the heartbreak. He lamented the, the challenging situation that he has in trying to spend time with their child. But he said, Scott, the congregation here has just been so supportive. They've encouraged me. They've tried to make adjustments to, to help as much as they possibly could. 
My heart's broken. But it's also uplifted by the way the brethren have treated me. And I've learned to stop trusting in that little G God of security. Idolizing security. Sometimes we do it with our finances. Sometimes we do it with our, with our fun fixations. Sometimes we even do it with our families. But if what we trust is anything besides our God, contentment will never fully be known and appreciated. We've got another God besides Him. Treasure heavenly treasures. Now let's take a brief side note. This is not the only time that Jesus taught on the idea of contentment versus covetousness. There was an occasion when a young man came to Jesus, Luke 12, and he sounds like a spoiled little brother. I say a spoiled little brother because it's usually the, a younger sibling that says, Tell him to share. You've heard it, right? One child has a toy or an item that, that seems to be fun, and another child that wants it comes and says, Tell him to share. This young man comes to Jesus and says, Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. You can hear the whininess in his voice when he says it. You know how Jesus reacted? He didn't react like so many parents that said, share with your brother. Mm -mm. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, tuck that lip back up and get over yourself. No, those weren't the exact words. What his words were, were take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Stop worrying about what everyone else has. Stop worrying about what your brother has. And in this case, perhaps the older brother was getting the double inheritance that went to the older, the eldest in the families at the time. What, whatever the case, the younger brother had no real complaint. And Jesus let him know it. Take heed. Beware of covetousness. Let's say beware of avarice. This desire for, for gain of whatever sort it might be. Paul would address the same situation when he wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 8. He said, godliness with contentment is great gain. He spoke of those that think that gain is godliness. But godliness with contentment is great gain. But they that desire to be rich, they that are motivated by, their, by wealth. And by the way, a person can desire to be rich and be flat broke. There are plenty that are ruled by avarice and covetousness and they have nothing because they don't know how to handle what, what comes their way. Jesus said, they that will be rich fall into him. Uh, uh, Paul, rather, said, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts that drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. For your treasure is there will your heart be also, right? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The reason contentment is so hard to find in America is because money is so easy to find. And we rely too much on it. Treasure heavenly treasures. Let's come back to the Sermon on the Mount and we'll move forward. Picking up at verse 25, Jesus transitioned to emphasizing this, this word miramnao when he says, Take no thought for your life, what we'll eat, what we'll drink. Take no thought for your body, what we shall wear. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? There's more to life than the food we eat. There's more to life than the clothes we wear. There's more to life than wearing designer fashions and, and trying to, to look better than everyone else. There's nothing wrong with trying to be presentable and be respectable and respectful. There's a lot wrong with turning every event into a fashion show. Jesus says, stop centering everything on what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear. He then says, consider the, the, the fowls of the air. They neither toil, neither they reap. They don't gather into barns. But your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? And why do you take thought? Why do you miramnao? Why are you so concerned over what you'll wear? Consider the lilies of the field. How they neither toil, neither do they spin, yet they grow and Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like unto one of these. And if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow was cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? 
When Jesus addressed the idea of take no thought, he used that word miram nao, don't be anxious. Don't have materialistic anxieties and worries over these sorts of situations. Materialistic anxieties indicate a low focus. Now, the prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, Proverbs 22, 3. The simple pass on and are punished. There is a place for having an eye forward and looking at potential pitfalls and troubles. You've been driving on snowy roads. Anyone that says you haven't been driving on snowy roads, you must live within just a few feet of the church building. When you're driving on snowy roads, do you have to keep your eyes ahead? If you say no, please don't drive home. Let us give you a ride. You've got to be looking forward, right? Seeing potential troubles and obstacles and dangers. Being willing to take that foot off the gas or off the brake. Being willing to make adjustments for the situation at hand. That's great. Anxiety occurs when we're trying to make adjustments for what's over the hill that we can't even see. Anxiety occurs when we're trying to predict things that are so far beyond of our control and out of our knowledge that we can't possibly know them. Materialistic anxiety occurs when we're doing that with our worries about a house or worries about a job or worries about finances. Do we need to have our eyes open and make wise decisions? Absolutely. But when we let those things rule our minds, it indicates we've got a low focus. We're not looking to Him, we're looking to us. Shall your Father not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? By the way, materialistic anxieties indicate a low faith, a low trust in God. Keep that thought in mind. We're going to come back to it. But for now, this word miramnao, the word Jesus begins using in verse 25, he, he used it again in verse 20, uh, 31, rather, when he says, Wherefore, take no thought for your life, what we'll eat or drink, or your body, what we'll wear. Your Father knows you have needs of these things. Uh, after these things the Gentiles seek after. Are we worrying about things like the heathen or are we worrying about the things of heaven? This idea, miram nao, take thought, worry, it gets used in another passage of Scripture. Uh, let's keep a, a finger or a marker at the Sermon on the Mount and let's run over to Philippians 4. Or maybe you can flip over to Philippians 4. But Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Paul begins this chapter with an emphasis on joy. He proceeds emphasizing joy. And when he wrote Philippians, he was in a, a Roman prison, writing to a congregation that had been in poverty and suffering hardship. If ever there was a time for Paul to write a blues tune, this was it. Yet Paul wrote an epistle of joy. How did Paul, in such a negative state, negative situation, writing to brethren facing such negative surroundings and negative environment, how did Paul manage to focus on joy? <laughs> Philippians 4, 6, he said, be careful for nothing. The word translated be careful, miramnao, be anxious for nothing. Consider three major ideas to draw from Philippians 4. In this context where Paul speaks of not being anxious, he also speaks of peace. He'll speak of the peace of God that passes understanding. He'll speak of the God of peace. He even speaks of peace with people. Working together, Yodius and Syntyche working together, Philippians 4 too. Yes, part of it is about having peace with people. Cooperation, joy. Philippians 4, 5, he said, Let your moderation, that is your gentleness, be known unto all men. What people tend to have the most peaceable relationships with others? Those that are gentle in their conduct or those that, that, that tend to be the kind that try to kill a fly with a chainsaw? What people tend to promote peace? What people are recognized as peacemakers? The ones that always just have to say what's on their mind are the ones that realize that a soft answer turns away wrath and that try to be deliberate, cautious, at the same time prudent and purposeful with their words. 
Peace with people. Do we seek it? Do we look for it? Do we put in the effort to, to achieve it? But not just peace with people, the peace of God. Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything. This is hard. In everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. In everything, with prayer and supplication. We're, we're talking about petitions being made to God. We're talking about going to God with our problems and our concerns and asking Him for help. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. He did not say in everything with prayer and supplication and then a week or two later come back with thanksgiving. When we go to God in prayer, when we're facing those trying times that cause us to be more inclined to worry, and there's a place for worry, there's a place for concern, there's a place for depression. You look at the symptoms of depression and you look at what Jesus faced the night before He went to Calvary, He faced depression. But there's also a place for peace. In everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, when we go to God with our cares and concerns, are we able to find a reason to be grateful? Prayers and supplication with thanksgiving. Father, we pray that you'll be with Grandma. Be with the doctors as they tend to her, as they, they see to her needs. And Father, we thank you for letting us have her for this long. Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to share, the laughter, the memories we've been able to make. Father, we thank you for allowing us to live in a time when medicine is able to treat conditions like this. Do we find reasons to be grateful? Maybe it's a medical situation. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's family turmoil. Moms and dads, are we thanking God for those children even when they're breaking our hearts? Are we thanking God that as, as difficult as the situation is, that as of right now there's still opportunity for things to be made right? Are we thanking God because even in situations like that, we can find something positive? In everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. When we go to God in prayer and we deliberately, purposefully identify reasons that we have to be sincerely grateful, it changes our outlook, which is why Paul will follow by saying in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which passeth understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We have to beware of anxieties. And if we're going to beware of anxieties, we need to be the kind of people that work on peace with people. If it be possible, as much as life in you live peaceably with all men. We need to be the kind of people that are looking for peace with God. And that peace with God involves prayer. But there's something else to it as well. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, this is honest. Whatsoever things are honest, this would be honorable, respectable. Whatsoever things are true, honest, just. The things that are just are the things that are fair and positive. Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure. Oh, can you think of things that are pure? Lovely? Of good report? If you and your particular station in life Struggle to think of anything that's, that's true and honorable. That's just and, and clean, pure. That's absolutely lovely and of good report. Then you've not thought about Jesus. The Christian should never struggle to be able to find at least something where our minds can focus on the positive. Do we face hardships and difficulties? Are there times when our obstacles and our hurts are overbearing? Absolutely. But even then, we can focus on what's true and honest, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. Focus on the things if there be any virtue and if there be any praise. Paul said, you think on these things. And the things that you've heard and seen and learned of me do, and the God of peace be with you. 
Not only does he promise the peace of God, but he says the God of peace will be with you. Again, there are times we're facing obstacles and challenges and hardships, and we have to have our eyes open to the difficulties. We can't ignore them. As we age, as life moves, as life moves forward, there are things that change, and maybe we lament that we can't do what we once could do. Okay. But can we still think on the true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report? Can we still think on these things? If we want to beware of anxiety, let's seek peace with people. Let's seek peace with God. And let's seek peace despite the circumstances. Paul tells them, Philippians 4.10, I have all and I'm content. In fact, I've learned in whatsoever state that I am therewith to be content. I've learned how to be a base, how to abound, how to suffer want, uh, how, how to be full, everywhere in all things. I've learned the secret, he says, to being content. How, Paul? I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. How was Paul able to focus on contentment? How was he able to beware of anxiety as he sat seemingly rotting away in a Roman prison? He wasn't alone. He knew Jesus was with him. And that was enough. Yes. We sing the song, Count your blessings, name them one by one. Oh. One of my heroes preached before thousands. And he made the statement... I've learned to stop counting my bruises and start counting my blessings. He said it from his wheelchair. And it made an impact on this preacher. We can find the positive. It might not always be easy. But when we'll decide to do that, the anxieties of life can be put in their proper place. Treasure heavenly treasures. Think heavenly thoughts. Let's come back to the Sermon on the Mount and conclude our, our study. One more point. We pick up at Matthew 6, 33. This is really where we started. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. All what things? All these things after which the Gentiles seek. All these things, what shall we wear? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? All these physical considerations, they'll be added to you. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and God will provide. Treasure heavenly treasures. Think on heavenly thoughts. And trust heaven's timing. You realize God doesn't have to grant our petitions as soon as we ask them. There are times he says yes. There are times he says no. There are times he says wait. If he told David no, as David petitioned for that, that son born to Bathsheba to survive, 2 Samuel 12. If he told Jeremiah no, when Jeremiah wanted to pray for the people, and he said, do not pray nor lift up a petition for them, I'll not hear you. If he told Jesus no, when he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Brethren, he can tell us no. But he can also tell us to wait. His timing is in his hands. Let's trust his plan. That's the point Jesus makes in Matthew 6, Trust his righteousness, his plan for righteousness, his plan for salvation, for justifying man. What's God's plan for my life for you to be in heaven? What about whether or not I'm going to marry? I don't know. I don't know if he has a plan for that. But I know that his plan is for your soul to spend eternity with him. Is that not the high priority? Is that not what's most important? Trust his plan. And trust his promise. Hebrews 13, 5. The Hebrews writer is actually come, he's come to the point where he is pointing his Hebrew audience back toward aspects that, that are so familiar with the Hebrew mind from the Old Testament that have not changed and will not change. You let brotherly love continue. Well, that's Leviticus 19, 18. You, 
Be not careful, uh, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Well, that's how Abraham and Lot acted. Uh, that's a quintessential aspect of the Jewish mindset. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Oh, yeah, thou shalt not commit adultery. Ten Commandments. He's still focusing them on unchanging principles when he comes to Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conversation, your manner of living be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have. Why? Why should I not live covetously? Why should I not be chasing the dollar or chasing the dream? Because God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Let's trust His promise. He told that to Moses. He told it to Joshua. He through David told it to Solomon. And he, through the writer of the, the, the pen of the Hebrews writer, tells it to us. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. And the words translated, I'll not leave you nor forsake you. The word translated forsake is ek kata lepo. Lepo, I'll leave. Kata, down. Ek, out from. He says, I'll not leave you down and out. When the anxiety seems to mount, when the depression is so heavy, trust Him. Trust His plan. Trust His promise. He's not left you. In fact, as much burden as you think you're carrying, chances are He's carrying you. Isn't it amazing? To look back over those periods of life that we thought were the toughest, the most trying, the most disappointing, only to realize that God seemingly through His providence was putting us in the perfect position for blessings that our minds couldn't imagine. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul was so quick to say in Ephesians 3, he's able to do exceedingly abundant above all we ask or think. Let's trust His plan. Let's trust His promise. And let's trust His power. What do we mean trust His power? There was someone else to whom He said no. 2 Corinthians 12. Don't know what His thorn in the flesh was. But He prayed for it. He said, There was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And for this thing I besought the Lord thrice. And what did the Lord say to Paul? For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient. Oh, it's all you need. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, Most gladly, therefore, will I, will I joy in infirmities and necessities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Let's trust in his power. Yes. As we move through life, we enjoy the strength of the prime of life. You're like, that's, not, that's not guaranteed to last. <laughs> we were having a conversation at dinner about how at age 45, the eyesight tends to go downhill. There are certain things that just aren't intended to last. But there are some things that are. You possess one thing that is eternal, and it's your soul. Is His grace sufficient for you to sustain you, to save you, to strengthen you, to bring you home? Contentment. Brethren, it's not a sin to have wealth. It's not a sin to be rich in this world. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul told Timothy to charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. He told Timothy to tell the rich brethren, trust in God. He didn't chastise them for having wealth. It's not a sin to have wealth, but as God's people, we're not guaranteed a 5,000 square foot house. We're not guaranteed a four or five car garage. We're not guaranteed spouses. We're not guaranteed children. We're not guaranteed what we so often take for granted. But when we trust Him, 
not only does He carry us through the disappointments, most gladly, we can joy in what we lack because through us He can show just how good He is. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, not our own. If we're going to trust in heaven's timing, there's something of which we must beware. We've talked about bewaring of avarice, bewaring of, uh, of anxiety, but we have to beware of arrogance. It's not about me. The world will move onward. Lives will continue Whatever I might lose, whatever hardships might come my way, heaven is still there. God is still good. Tonight, here's a question. When we talk about contentment, if it's good enough for God, should it be good enough for me? God's content with some things that this world takes for granted. Think about the words of Ephesians 4. God's content with one body, the church. God's content with one spirit. He only has one. Even as you're called in one hope of your calling, there's only one hope of heaven. If we're not content with that, there's not going to be another. One Lord Jesus, one faith that saves, and one baptism that submits to it. One God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. God is content with one. Are we? Tonight, have you lived your life treasuring earth's treasures instead of heaven's? Thinking earthly thoughts instead of heavenly? And trusting earthly things instead of trusting heaven's timing? Maybe it's the case this evening that it's time to obey the gospel of Christ. It's time to submit to the one who shed his blood so that you can be washed. Are you ready? Being washed is simple. It was Jesus that said... He that rejects me, receives not my words, has one that judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day, John 12, 48. Are you willing to heed his words? The words that declare that he is indeed the Son of God, except you believe that I'm he, shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. He's the one that died, he rose, and he left all the proof necessary so that we can know that he is who he is. That's the gospel message, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Have you heard the message, believed it enough to be willing to say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, confess him? like that eunuch did in Acts 8. Are you ready to repent? That's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. It's about repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe you need to repent of your ambitions. Maybe you need to repent of your past religion. Maybe you need to repent of the way you've been making your decisions. If you're willing to repent, you're ready to be washed. If so, the words said to Paul still ring true. Why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. This evening, if you're not content to stay away from God, let's come home. If you need prayers, if you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you need to be a child of God who repents, why not take the opportunity while we stand together and while we sing?